Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This week on Commons People, the government sees off a Tory rebellion over aid cuts. This isn't about palaces for dictators and vanity projects. Yeah, yeah. It's about what cuts to funding mean, that fewer girls will be educated, more girls and boys will become slaves, more children will go hungry, and more of the poorest people in the world will die. And Freedom Day beckons. But is it really such a good idea? Uh, from the evidence from the government's own advisors, SAGE, we know from the World Health Organization that we're in a face covering, particularly indoors, where you can't keep your distance, uh, does reduce transmissions. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast. I'm Ned Simons. I'm joined by Paul Moore. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hi, Ned. Nice to see you again. And our guest this week is former Conservative International Development Secretary, Andrew Mitchell. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Good afternoon to you both. So um, this week, the government saw off a Tory rebellion led by Andrew over planned cuts to aid spending. Uh, MPs voted by majority of 35 to keep the budget for development at 0.5 of national income, but 25 Conservatives joined Labour and other parties in an attempt to reinstate the 0.7 figure. Um, here's Theresa May, one of the rebels, slamming the government's decision. This isn't about palaces for dictators and vanity projects. Yeah, yeah. It's about what cuts to funding mean, that fewer girls will be educated, more girls and boys will become slaves, more children will go hungry, and more of the poorest people in the world will die. I have been in this house for nearly a quarter of a century. During that time, I have never voted against a three-line whip from my party. As Prime Minister, I suffered at the hands of rebels. I know what it is like to see party colleagues voting against their government. We made a promise to the poorest people in the world. The government has broken that promise. This motion means that promise may be broken for years to come. With deep regret, I will vote against the motion today. So, Paul, um, briefly, can you explain what the government um, did here and, and how did it kind of try and persuade some of the uh, Tory rebels to, to back it? Well, what happened was uh, basically a cunning wheeze from the Treasury. And I, I'm told it was a cunning wheeze personally devised by the Chancellor himself uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, they came up with this thing called a double lock. Politicians love a lock, don't they? Triple lock, double lock. Um, and they came up with a double lock, which was to attach preconditions needed before a return to 0.7%. Uh, and those conditions were getting the budget in surplus and falling public debt both of which, let's be honest, have proved very difficult to achieve in recent years, uh, but they'd be both assessed by the independent OBR. So it all sounded very Treasury-like, very above board, very fiscally responsible, etc. cetera. Uh, and so that's why it persuaded some Tories to, to come on board, because they thought the argument was this was 
a more sustainable way of making sure that that 0.7 would would last. And they said it, it, this chancellor himself said it was a, it would secure the 0.7 uh, because the public finances would be on a sounder footing. Now the real flaw in that argument, of course, um, and Andrew rightly called it a fiscal trap, was that. If you look to the fine print, once the 0.7 is reached, hey presto, the lock disappears. So it just seems a bit odd. The whole point, if the whole point is to attach conditions about how sustainable public finances are, once you get there, if you cease to meet those conditions, logically, surely the edge should be cut again. But that's not what's going to happen. So um, I think a few Conservative MPs failed to grasp that, that actually this was actually much more of a fig leaf, I think, than a, than a real lock. Um, but and and the other point, the other reason some of them obviously went on board was good old fashioned whips shenanigans, which Andrew will be more than familiar with as a former whip and former chief whip, which was, you know, uh, dangling jobs in a reshuffle in front of a few people. I don't know if you heard that, Andrew, or whether or not that's, there's any truth in that. Well, I mean, you are right in saying that uh, this is an old-fashioned uh, stately minuet that has gone on. I mean, we caught the government on the hop uh, some weeks ago. We had our numbers, we had our new clause, but the Speaker took legal advice and in the end our clause wasn't uh, called. Um, and he's the Speaker, he's the referee, and of course I accept that with good grace, but had it gone ahead we would have won. And I told the House we'd have won by nine, but I think it would have been a bit more than that. But we had the advantage of surprise. And this time, uh, the Treasury were able to lay out their plans very much in the way that you've described, Paul. And what they had to do was to burn off enough people so that they would win and they wouldn't lose by more than nine. Um, and so they came up with this weeds, which you've described very well. Uh, and they, um, they burnt off enough Tories to know that they would win. Um, and then they launched it in their own time and they gave us less than 24 hours to respond. But we would never have won in those circumstances. Our chance to win was the earlier time when we had the advantage of surprise. And so it was a question of seeing how many people we could keep together. And the 25 Tories who signed up and stayed firm, you know, are, in my view, apart from me, are heroes because they stood firm and they stood up for Britain's international reputation and they stood up for the poorest people in the world. And, you know, just today we see this report from Oxfam that there's half a million people now dying of starvation, a sixfold increase since uh, the COVID crisis started. And you've seen the figures today from Central Africa that COVID is now a poor person's disease and it's because of all these different variants, it's killing large numbers of people in, in, in Africa. So the people who stood by it, uh, in my view, are heroes. And those who slipped away, I mean, some of them agonized and told me, some of them just slipped away and hoped no one would notice. And uh, as, you, as you correctly foretell, you know, the whips are, I've been poacher and gamekeeper in these, in these ways. And you prey, you prey on the frailty of human nature. You offer people who's, who you know their principles will be overridden if they have the smell of a job. Uh, I think countless uh, new ministers for paperclips uh, will no doubt uh, shortly be announced. Um, and you play on people's insecurities and you know what people's weaknesses are and uh, that's how you get the others on board and, and that's how it was done. It's bog standard whipping operation using the power of patronage, uh, seduction, all, you know, all the panoplies that a government can do and they've got a majority of 80. Uh, we got it down 
to the lowest it's been in this parliament. And uh, it's not gonna work, go away. It's a problem for the government, of course, because we've broken our word. We've trashed Britain's international reputation. All around the world, people are aghast that Britain would turn itself in on itself in this way as the chair of the G7, the only G7 country cutting aid for goodness sake in a, in a, in a pandemic, take, literally taking food off the plates of starving children. I mean, it's not what Britain does. It's not what uh, people would want. I mean, remember this, Paul, after the war, Britain kept rationing so that the, the famine would not develop and take off in Germany. That's what Britain is like after a war. And to behave in this way, I think is completely unconscionable. And as Talleyrand said, it's, it's worse than a crime, it's a mistake because we don't have to do it. What's, um, what's next for Conservatives like you, Andrew, want, want this to be changed? Is there kind of a next step to take, a next bill on the horizon you think you can try and get the 0.7 back at all? No, I think that uh, the government's done the right thing in bringing it to Parliament. Mr Speaker said that they had to do it, and the government has done that. And uh, the government made it perfectly clear that if Parliament voted for the, uh, the 4.7 and against the government, then they would bring it back next year, which was the olive branch we had offered on the previous occasion. You know, not this year, we accept that this year has gone, but next year they would bring it back. And so the government put the matter perfectly, properly and fairly to the House of Commons and individual members of the House of Commons consulted their consciences on this. I mean, after all, all of us were elected, every single one of us, on a very specific manifesto promise to the poorest people in the world that we would stand by the 0.7. So my colleagues have searched their conscience and have voted accordingly. And uh, and that that's it now, as far as I can see in Parliament. And of course, as Paul hinted, it's never going to come back because partly for the reason he said, but also, you know, it was a trap for the unwary and a tremendous tribute to the silver tongue of the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Because uh, if you look back, you don't, have to, you don't have to look in the crystal ball, you can read the book. And the book shows that in the last 21 years, it would only have come back once. So in my view, until there is a change of sentiment in the government, uh, the, uh, the 07 is not going to come back and the damage that's going to be done is immense and the, in a way you know the, the, the process now shifts to civil society you know it was civil society that that led to britain showing this extraordinary leadership over the last two decades under both conservative and labor and indeed coalition governments and there's a an organization which you'd have heard a huge amount about but for covid and the lockdown called crack the crises and it is an amalgam in the spirited footsteps of Make Poverty History and the Jubilee Debt Campaign. And it's an amalgam of environmental NGOs and developed NGOs. And, you know, the number of people on average per constituency who are paid up members of this, not just people who signed a piece of paper or something, but paid up members is over 10,000 on average per constituency. And they will be heard and they will organize. And, you know, anyone who lived through Make Poverty History and uh, who understands the strength of feeling in Britain about this um, will will understand that once they can, these people will will mobilise and they will have their views heard. And good luck to them. And do you think, actually, Andrew, that electorally that might be a real problem for the Conservatives? I mean, some of your colleagues have said, obviously, it's, and you too, that it wasn't a direct reason for Cheshire and Amersham, which was mainly planning, but. That, that it all adds to the the feeling that maybe this isn't a party I, I re that is in tune with my values anymore. And those sort of those liberal conservatives, those conservative liberals that 
that switch over voter um, may well seek to vote Lib Dem or others? Well, David Cameron taught us that uh, you don't get an overall majority. And remember, the Tories didn't get an overall majority between 1992 and 2015 without being a broad church. And why did we get the majority in 2015? Because we won all those Liberal Democrat seats, particularly in the West Country. And why did we win them? For precisely the reason you said, it's because liberal, social, socially liberal conservatives like, like me care a lot about this. And they felt it was safe to vote for David Cameron's Conservative Party because in spite of the austerity, we had set our face against balancing the books on the backs of the poorest people in the world. And so they voted Conservative. They felt comfortable and happy in the Conservative Party. And, and many of those people will not feel like that after what has now happened. And they won't accept the argument that we're in a crisis caused by COVID in the public finances because the 0.7 reacts to the state of the public finances. It goes up and down with the state of the British economy. So they won't accept that. They will feel we have broken our promise and it will do great damage to the Conservative Party. And you know, Boris has been brilliant at adding on the red wall seats and it's produced in Parliament some extremely able new colleagues. So he's done very well on expanding the Tory DNA in that respect. But if you lose off the other end, people who really care about this sort of international agenda and who think it's unconscionable that we're cutting aid in the middle of a pandemic and really seriously affecting the, the plight of some of the poorest, most wretched people in the world. Um, they won't be voting for a party that has chosen to do that when it didn't have to. You mentioned um, social, social, kind of socially liberal um, conservative voters, Andrew. Do you think there's a similar danger that um, the kind of row over racism and the England football team could have a kind of similar effect on, on support for the party? Just before we, I mean, just to go back, there's been some polling done recently, which looks to me very accurate. When, when I was at Diffid, in 2010, support for the government's development policies ran at 46%. And in two years later, in 2012, it had gone up to 50, just, just below 50. It then, partly because it wasn't really defended by very strongly by most of my successors, um, it slipped back again and it got back to 43, 44%. But since this campaign started and since the government announced these cuts, support for international development in Britain has gone from 44% to 53%. And it's not an accident that. And, and if that, that polling, I think, is, is relevant, but it's not overwhelming. It's relevant to what happened in Chesham and Amersham. And remember our much loved former colleague, uh, Cheryl Gillen. She was a very strong supporter of the Point Seven and would definitely have been in our lobby uh, on Tuesday. So, so I, th I just think it's worth making that point. Now, now, on the racism stuff, you know, I think that the idea that Priti Patel is fanning racism is absurd. You know, she has fought it all her life and she's, uh, she's been uh, very impressive, I think, in, in calling it out. So, so I, I don't think there's any tendency at all in the Tory party, and certainly none that we would tolerate, that is racist. Have, have, have there been some wrong calls? I think there probably have. But uh, uh, the Tory party is not a racist party. And Andrew, I just wanted to ask you, um, procedurally, the Lords made this point, Lord Fowler yesterday, that actually this was just a, a, a con trick, that actually the government have bypassed both houses by having a Commons motion. Um, do you think that apart from just complaining about it, there's anything that can be done on that in the Lords? Or, or is, that, is that it, as you suggest? Well, 
you know, he's right about that. It was a motion uh, and it, you can't amend legislation with a motion. Um, and, uh, you know, he's my predecessor. So you're hearing perhaps more than you would wish from the Royal Sutton Coalfield Massif. But, but, uh, but Norman is right about that. And the Lords will feel very strongly that you can't just tear up a promise like this on the basis of a vote in the, in the House of Commons. You, you need legislation to do it. But my feeling is that the government did the right thing and had the vote and won it. So, so you know, I think that the battle is now outside Parliament, it's in civil society. But, you know, the Lords are absolutely within their right. And, and you know, so are, the, um, so are those who are considering launching a judicial review, who, who, who take a similar view to the Lords. You know, they, they are entirely in their right to do this. I just think as a democratically elected member of Parliament, I must accept that Parliament has now voted, even if they were, you know, people were beguiled and uh, talked into a trap uh, that the, the Chancellor cleverly organised. Um, nevertheless, Parliament has spoken. And for those of us who are Democrats, you can't now say, well, you know, Parliament hasn't, uh, hasn't, hasn't had a chance. We have had that chance. Yeah. And other, other issues now may come to the fore, such as the ones that Norman Fowler is raising. But in terms of a vote, which is what I particularly wanted, uh, we've had that now. And just one final one on the implications for the Conservative Party. I mean, what do you think of the suggestion that somehow Rishi Sunak's leadership um, hopes have been boosted by this, that um, a lot of Tory backbenchers like what he did, it, it, it underlined sort of sense of fiscal responsibility, it was a tough decision, the way he ambushed the rebels, showed he had a bit of nous, that perhaps there's this talk abroad that actually it proves that actually he is the heir apparent, or do you think actually it's damaged him um, amongst the voters, not amongst Tory backbenchers, and that perhaps amongst Tory members who, who shake those tins for Christian aid on a Sunday? Well, this, I think Rishi is a, a, has a lot more to do for the Conservative Party. I think he is an absolutely brilliant Chancellor, with this one exception. Um, and he has shown in his time as Chancellor, I think, that he has the ability and the gifts to go further. I'm no doubt about that. And I like him as well. He's always been extremely courteous to me in the way he's handled this. And uh, I, I, I respect that very much, but I do think it's a mistake. And uh, I was unsuccessful in persuading him it was a mistake. Many people feel it was done because it was thought to be popular in the red wall seats. Uh, you know, it was said that 81% of people in the red wall seats approved of it, but it all depends on the question you ask, Paul. If you say to people in the red wall seats, do you want to send taxpayers money overseas? They're probably gonna say no. But if you say, do you want to cut humanitarian aid and literally take the food off starving children's plates, then 92% say no. So it all depends, you know, you can do what you want with the polling. And I think, I think it was done for the wrong reason. It's 1%, this total spending he's cut, is 1% of the COVID borrowing uh, that he quite rightly took on last year. You know, and it seems to me to be quite wrong to, to, to have this draconian effect on Britain's reputation and the world's poorest for just 1%. There were other ways of, of cutting our cloth and all of that. So, so I think that, that, that is, is something where, you know, there's an honourable disagreement. I think he was wrong to do it. And I think uh, in government, if you do things for the wrong reasons, they often come back to what you with the public and they very well may. Okay, so um, I think moving on to our next topic, which is going to be um, lockdown. Um, Monday is so-called Freedom Day in England. Uh, most of the remaining COVID rules will be lifted. Um, but there is quite a lot of nervousness around the lifting of lots of them, particularly face masks. Um, 
Here's London Mayor Sadiq Khan explaining why masks will remain mandatory on the capital's transport network after July 19th. Good morning. Look, we know uh, from the evidence from the government's own advisors, SAGE, we know from the World Health Organization that we're in a face covering, particularly indoors, where you can't keep your distance, uh, does reduce transmissions. It leads to not just a greater public safety, but greater public confidence uh, as well. What we're doing uh, in the absence of national legislation is using what's called the conditions of carriage. Basically, it's the, the contract you have when you want to use TFL services. One of the conditions you've got to abide by is the requirement to wear a face uh, covering. And by and large, the great news is the vast, vast, vast majority of people over the last uh, uh, 12 months have used a face covering without the need for enforcement. And I'm confident both Londoners and those visiting our city will continue to wear a face covering uh, when they're using TfL services. Andrew, I, I wondered what you thought about the rules being lifted on Monday. Do you think it's too soon? Do you think it's about right? What's your, what's your view on that? No, I think the government is right on this. And um, I also think that uh, Boris's instincts are that it's much better to encourage people to be sensible and to, to have the sort of the stamp of, of, of laws on all of this. So, so I think he's right to open up on Monday, but I think we've all got to be sensible. I, for example, will always be wearing a mask if I'm coming into contact with people who who may be vulnerable or who, in a, in, a, in a transport situation, I think is absolutely right to do that. But I, I do think that the emphasis should be on people using their own common sense. And, you know, with a daughter who's had to postpone her wedding last year and this year to next year, you know, I think that we've got to remember the damage that has been done to people's life, their mental health by the provisions of lockdown and try and restore normality as much as possible. And having said that, you know, tonight in the royal town of Sutton Coalfield, the figures aren't good for uh, COVID infection rates, but they are still pretty good in terms of people not being hospitalised. And you know, the more normalcy we can inject into the situation with the minimum number of restrictions, the better. And what's interesting, Andrew, don't you think, is that one root out of this, as the premise has often said, is testing. So you might not have to isolate, but if you test on a daily basis, then you can go about your daily life, even if you've, um, you know, come into contact with somebody. If you personally have tested negative and you repeatedly test negative, then you don't have to isolate. And that we're going to get to that point in August. Um, it, it seems, however, though, that in the last few days, there's a, a massive shortage of PCR tests. Um, and we're seeing that today, every region of the country, it says not available if you go on the website. Um, do you think that that, again, is something the minister should really get a grip of? Because without testing, surely there the, the really isn't a proper freedom. No, and I think that will have to be addressed. But, but Paul, the operation is a pretty slick operation. The vaccination programme has been brilliantly rolled out across the country. And, you know, if, you, if one's going to attack the government for the mistakes in the early stage, you've got to give credit to the government for the vaccination success. And I think, you know, we have got our act together now. And uh, where there are glitches like the one you described, I think they will be dealt with very fast. If we sort of had to live with COVID, which looks like it will be the case for some time, if not forever, um, is there like an acceptable number of deaths, do you think, the country will just have to get used to? I, I, there's never an acceptable number of deaths and mm -hmm. we have to do everything we possibly can to help our fellow citizens first and foremost here in 
Sutton Coalfield and in, in our own country, but then overseas, because, you know, if it spreads like, like a, a forest fire through the poorest people in Africa, then uh, that will have a direct impact on us as well, because we won't be safe here until we, re we deal with that issue. So, so, so we've got to uh, do everything we can to preserve uh, life, but we've got to do it in a way that reflects the fact that there are a lot of people whose mental health has been very badly damaged by this uh, pandemic. And uh, getting a proper assessment of the right thing to do is the job of government. Paul, actually, you had a story this week about uh, masks in Parliament. Um, you reported that um, whilst staff will have to wear masks, MPs won't. Um, can you explain kind of how that can be? Like, what, what happened there? Well, to be fair, this all comes down to the fact that the Speaker has no jurisdiction whatsoever over how members behave. He, he's, they're not his employees, whereas the, the, the members of staff on the parliamentary estate effectively are his employees and he can tell them what to do. And he's decided um, he will require them, members of staff, to wear masks even after July 19. And he cannot require a member of parliament to do the same. So I think uh, to be fair, he's caught on the horns of that dilemma, and it will be up to individual members of parliament to perhaps show some respect for the, the members of staff around them. And the, the trade unions have written to him today, urging them, urging the speaker to change it. He's, he said, look, I can't. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, and, but um, I, I suspect those unions are going to say, and they've said they will do, they'll name and shame which MP is not wearing a mask around the estate and they will shame them into wearing them. I don't know what you think um, um, about that, Andrew. Um, I imagine, as you say, your, your instinct would be to, to keep wearing one, but I don't know. Well, I shall do what the speaker asks. And uh, although he doesn't employ us, he's perfectly capable of telling us what he thinks. And if he's telling staff to wear masks, then he'll be advising colleagues to wear masks. There's no doubt about that. And I will take Mr. Speaker's advice. So um, moving on to the quiz. Don't yes, worry, it's, and it's, it's a quick one. Um, it's, a, it's a quick one and it's about, it's about the whip. Andrew is a former chief whip. I'm expecting this to be very easy for you. Um, so first question. Um, in September 2019, a number of Tory MPs had the whip removed for trying to block a no-deal Brexit. But how many were? Ooh, I think that's 20. 21, was it? 21 is the figure that sticks in my mind. On, I mean, on the whole, you should never withdraw the whip. We did it during Maastricht. It was a big, big mistake. Um, uh, when I think we took the whip away from 11 people at one point, which wiped out the government's majority. Um, but uh, in the whole, on the whole, it's not something you should do. But of, clearly, it's something which the government thought was so essential in order to retrieve its business that uh, they did. Um, and, you know, I voted for Boris... Uh, to be leader of our party, partly because I thought that following the Theresa May years, it was essential that a Brexiteer was our prime minister to get this thing through. And Boris did get it through, you know, you, you can't take that away from him. You were, you were both right. It was 21. So, oh, well wow. Oh, yeah. Amazing. There we go. Um, oh. Question two. Um, who was the last Tory MP to voluntarily resign the party? Oh, was that David Davis? No, no, it wasn't nope. David. It was, it was, might have been... Um, what's that very nice man who, who retired last time? Oh, oh was it um, Hollingbury? No, no. I, I think it is, um, I'm trying to, the, um, Nick, um, help me out, Paul. Nick, Nick uh, Bowles, Nick Bowles. So uh, it wasn't either of those, actually. Um, it was Amber Rudd 
um, oh. when she resigned. Oh, yes. She resigned from the cabinet and also resigned the party whip in solidarity oh. with, with those other those other Brexit rebels there. Oh wow, okay. I've forgotten that completely. Very good. Well, no, that's uh, that's uh, a very good. Oh, that's a very good whip question. <laughs> and final question: um, uh, Who resigned the Tory whip and branded themselves as a quote independent progressive conservative? Oh my goodness! Goodness Ooh. me. Well, let's let's uh, confer. Paul, I would say it could be Anna Subri. It could be. Um, I think it's the doctor. Rory Stewart. It could be Rory Stewart. I maybe. think it's the doctor Philip Lee. Oh no, maybe I'm wrong. Was it Philip Lee? No, he went to the Lib Dems, didn't he? So um, yeah, Philip, Philip Lee went straight to the Lib Dems. He walked across the chamber very dramatically. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember? Um, so, it's it's actually it's um it's Nick Bowles who you mentioned oh. just before, Andrew. Oh. So uh, you got it half. Right. You got the right, yeah, the right person. Point. Just the half right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we, well done, everyone. Can we have half a point for for, yeah, for you, trying? Anyway, you can. I think Andrew wins as a result. Yeah. I think he gets two and a half points. Yeah. Which very is well, quite, very, I think that's very generous, Paul. Very generous. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, okay. Right. Thank you, everyone. Um, make sure you subscribe to Commons People wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave us a review. Um, you can also get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster from Paul's Warzone newsletter, or you can subscribe at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. And we'll leave you with Jacob Rees-Mogg, somewhat embarrassingly attempting a rap in the House of Commons. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. Um, everyone, I think, is rejoicing at the football success. And I think, I think the line to take, Mr. Speaker, is from Mr. Barnes. You've got to hold and give but do it at the right time. You can be slow or fast, but you must get to the line. And can I reassure you, Mr Speaker, that we ain't no hooligans. This ain't a football song. Three lions on my chest. I know we can't go wrong. Or as another John put it, John Dryden, for they can conquer who believe they can. And I think for the record, that Dryden was translating Virgil in those comments. But the point is exactly the same, and it is indeed the excellent leadership of Mr Southgate which led to such a good triumph yesterday against Denmark, and let's hope for the same uh, on Sunday. Mm -hmm.